wonderful to have all of you here tonight, tuning in and joining us. You know, what, what would make the, the ultimate power couple, do you think? I think if two Acellus teachers got married, <laughs> that, would be, that would be awesome. That'd be the ultimate power couple. Yeah, no, that, that reminds me. Did you hear that the biology teacher broke up with the physics teacher? There was just no chemistry. <laughs> expected. So, all right, it's time to get it over to Dr. John and the Technology Spotlight. I've got a question for you. What do you do when you have too many pictures and photos and uh, videos and things? Well, when I was little, we had a great solution for that. We'd get another shoebox. Put them in, <laughs> right? But no, that doesn't work nowadays because they're all digital. So they're not actual paper photos that you can hold that you put in the shoebox, but they're on your computer. And this is great because you can have a lot more. Imagine if you decided to take all of the photos and videos and put them onto cassette tapes and, you know, print them out and everything off of your computer. That would be a lot of uh, photos, wouldn't it? Well, for some of us at least, there'd be a lot of photos. Uh, so what do we do with all these photos? Well, there's another really great solution. Just put them in the cloud, you know, just in the cloud. Well, what's the cloud? I like to describe the cloud as someone else's computer. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't mind that, then there, there is that. But now the question goes on, what do the people in the cloud do with all your photos. <laughs> and you can see we can keep going. And that is actually what we're going to talk about tonight because people like Microsoft and Apple that have these clouds and they have lots of files have this problem. And um, this is something that is quite a big problem for the whole media industry. Remember how we used to do all of our filming and news reporting with video cameras that had a cassette tape in them? And they'd pull the tape out and edit that, you know, pull the video off of that and edit it and show it on the news that night. And then they would label the tape and put it on the shelf. Then the digital age happened. And all of a sudden, instead of these cassette, cassette tapes, they had like, you know, the little SD card and thing. It was really handy. They saved a fortune. But something kind of unexpected happened. A lot of video footage was lost, especially right at first because, you know, you do the footage, you, instead of putting the tape on the shelf, you wipe the SD card and start over. And they're realizing now that they lost a lot of footage that they wish they had kept. And so now they're trying to save everything and makes this problem even bigger. I want to show you a picture of some video. This is actually the Superman movie, you know, the original Superman movie. And uh, if you were going to take that and put it on a DVD, it wouldn't fit. The normal version would, you know, the kind you'd get on your, uh, to play in your DVD player, but if you wanted the full screen, super high resolution for a whole theater, that'd be more like, uh, you know, 60 gigabytes, a lot of data. And uh, so this is the example that Microsoft used, and they're trying to come up with new storage where they could put the data and it would stay there for a long time. Sometimes they use magnetic tapes, and then something happens, maybe someone takes a magnet past some hard drives and whoop, it's gone. <laughs> or they have the optical media, they have like CDs and DVDs. Did you ever hear about that sickness that the, the mm -hmm. DVDs got? It was actually a bacteria that would eat the coating off of the disks and ruin the data. So they don't last very long either. So how do they do it? They're trying to come up with the material to use. And finally, the solution was clear. No, I mean that literally. It was clear. It was glass. <laughs> this is the Superman movie on glass. And you can see <clears throat> how it's a clear piece of glass, the glass disc, and then you can see the data in there, kind of like you would see on a DVD or something. Uh, but the neat thing about this is that it's extremely durable. They did a lot of experiments. You know, they put it in the boiling water. They... Uh, exposed it to all kinds of different conditions, they scratched it, and the data stayed safe in there for quite a long time. And they think, <coughs> excuse me, they think the data could stay there for up to like a thousand years if they keep the glass from melting or breaking, 
you know, because obviously <laughs> broken, that wouldn't be good. Uh, so let's take a look at kind of how this process would work. They actually use a laser. You can see how it shoots in the glass and it makes what's called a voxel. And these little voxels encode the data. And they have to shoot the laser at a super high frequency. It's like a femtosecond, which is a teensy, teensy portion of a second. Very, very small. And they don't just shoot the voxels in different sizes, but they also change the orientation of the laser so they, they're encoding the direction, you know, the phase of the light. And then they have their piece of glass. And, you know, the obvious question now is when the glass gets full, then what do you do? And again, if you're old enough, you know, insert disk two, right? <laughs> and hopefully someday that'll be automated. But if you look at this picture, you can see the researcher pulling out the disk. And in this case, he's putting it into the reader. And it's not quite small enough to go in your laptop yet, but it's, you know, we're making progress. And they have to do kind of the opposite process where they have a, it's basically a microscope, look at these little teeny voxels and determine how big they are and their orientation so they can read out the data. So let's take a look at that and see if we can kind of get an idea here. Let's see here. There we go. <coughs> Is it working? Yeah, so you can see how uh, this is a 3D image. They don't just do one layer of voxels. They do a whole bunch of layers. And then with their special microscope, they look at the different uh, orientations, the different phases, and then they put them together. And you can see in this picture how there are different colors. Those are the different phases of the laser. And then they can focus on different layers and go right down through that piece of glass and look at every single layer of voxels and uh, read that data out. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it because uh, if, when you try to think about the density here, you know how we have DVDs. If you took a piece of glass about the size of a DVD, they could store around 360 terabytes in that much space. Terabytes, that's a whole bunch of data. And um, like I say, that's data that they're not going to be reading a lot that they want to have sit on the shelf for a really long time. So uh, one of their partners is Warner Bros, who have lots and lots of film, like Superman, <laughs> and they want to save it for a really long time, but they don't want to have that volume of film and have that liability. And, you know, and that film is actually quite fragile. And so um, they're thinking this is a way that they could store that. So. Um, one problem that they're still working on is it's pretty slow. If you're going to write all that data to the glass, that laser has to shoot every voxel in. Well, doing like the Superman movie right now, it took them overnight to write all that data, which is pretty slow compared to the amount of data that we're talking about. So there's still some work to do, but this is uh, a neat technology. Another thing is, this is probably never going to go in your laptop. You're not going to get glass disks to run, at least not on a normal computer, because this is something that they'll keep in their data center. So the cloud <laughs> will be able to save all of your files. Really wonderful. I wonder how much data you could save in Cinderella's glass slipper. <laughs> not, not a very safe place, right? <laughs> well, that's all the tech we have the time for. Okay, and now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. So, I was going to talk about cool data storage tonight. <laughs> and then John came and stole my thunder, so... Now I kind of feel like that little drizzle after the big storm, you know? And commuters can just expect a light drizzle for the rest of the morning. Uh, that's all we, no, we're talking about data storage, which is really cool, and it's, it's doing amazing things, <coughs> but how did we get there, okay? So, <clears throat> the story behind the story, here we go. <clears throat> no, we're talking about hard drives, okay? Hard drives, you know, you've seen some of those probably. How did those hard drives, I mean, think about it. How does a hard drive, oh, 
I happen to have one here. <laughs> How does this hold more than a library? It's super strong, no, okay? This can hold more than a library? Pretty incredible, how does that work? Computers are amazing. And you know, I'm kinda like, when I think about computers and I try to comprehend it, I just get lost. I'm like, it is so complicated. But turns out it's really simple, at least that's what John told me. <laughs> um, it turns out computers are very simple. They're just really, really fast at being really, really simple. Okay, so if you're, and I'll explain. So if you're learning like the English language, you got a lot of stuff to learn. And if you want to communicate in the real world, you got to learn other things like, hey, over there, that guy, you know, that's language, okay? All this stuff we got to learn. Computers, if you want to talk to computers, you can't just talk to them, okay? You can't go over and say, hey, can you calculate this number for, well, some of you guys are going like, well, I tell Alexa every morning to give me a joke, okay? That's because you need real friends, okay? <laughs> but even Alexa, that's a good example, even Alexa, that's not what's going to the computer. It gets fine-tuned, fine-tuned, down, 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 to finally what computers speak on. And computers are like, okay, you want to communicate with me? There's only one way, literally only one way, okay? It's on or off. That's all you get. So, I mean, you can send this electricity in the wire, you can send the voltage in the wire, or have it off. That's all you get. How in the world do you communicate with on-off, okay? So really simple, but it starts to get really, really fast at that simplicity. So a really good way to think about this, <coughs> you know, we, we can think of it as on, off, uh, yes, no, ones and zeros. You've probably seen those, those, you know, when they talk about computers in the digital world, they have the stock footage of the ones and zeros floating around. That's the language that computers use, are ones and zeros. Why in the world would we do that? Well, it turns out there's a whole language called binary that uses that. So why in the world would we use this language? Well, a good example, a thought process here is, okay, I work at the stadium, I'm up in the bleachers, and I sell hot dogs. And so I have made a little contraption with eight wires, we're, we're high tech, going to the hot dog room at the bottom of the stadium, okay? And on each wire there's a switch, an on-off switch. Whew. On the other side there's a light maybe, so the person down there can see. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna use these eight switches to tell how many hot dogs have been ordered. Oh, one hot dog or Oh, two more. So now three of the switches are on. Okay, so they're making three hot dogs. Oh, five more, we're full, we're out of capacity. We're at eight, okay? So we can store up to eight hot dog orders on this switch. So if I wanna be able to store maybe 100 orders, I need a panel of 100 switches, okay? That's if we use the numerical system. Well, what if we could have a language that utilized these switches being on and off in different combinations to signify more numbers than just the eight. So it turns out, this is what binary does. With binary, I could have those eight switches, and if I know binary and the guy downstairs knows binary, I can actually do up to 255 hot dog orders. Different combinations of these different switches being on and off that will signify one all, the, well zero, all the way up to 255. So much more efficiency for these on-off communications. And if you think about so each of these ones and zeros, if you think of those switches being on is one, off is zero, okay? They call those bits. Each switch is a bit. And they usually communicate in pieces of eight, or that's the starting point, and they call that byte. So you've got the bits, and then you've got the byte, okay? One way you can think about it is, think about the crocs down in Australia. It, wait, it makes sense. <laughs> if it gets a tooth on you, you might have a bit of a scratch, okay? But what you gotta really watch out for are them bites, okay? <laughs> So, now that that awkward representation has been seared in your mind, okay, so bits and bytes, okay, and, and guess what, if you, you can put them together, we could do another byte, so now two eights, we could do four bytes, so now that's four times 32, so we have four times eight, that's 32, 32 switches, with 32 switches, I can get, communicate number between zero and over three billion, okay, that's like I can cover half the Royal Stadium, right there of hot dog orders, but <coughs> that got huge just with 32 switches. I mean, if you think about it, if I did that old way of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight to signify those numbers, I'd need three billion switches to send that information over of I need 100 switches, I need 100 hot dogs, so I turn 100 switches on. With binary, we can send so much data, and what about if you wanna do letters? Turns out with binary, you can do letters. So let's go back to the byte. 0110 0001. That's A in binary. 
and that's all I have memorized. <laughs> but literally, when you go to a computer, you type A, two. You just typed one byte of zeros and ones. So if you're storing these, this text, you're storing these collections of zeros and ones because that's how the computer will communicate. These little transistors or switches and wires running through the computer are doing that, okay? So we have to understand that. So now it starts, how do we store those zeros and ones? And then it gets even worse because what about a picture, okay? If I take a selfie and put it on this hard drive, if I get a microscope and I'm gonna go, oh, there I am, <laughs> is my face somewhere on here? No, it's still just ones and zeros because it breaks it into all these pixels and those are signified by numbers which are broken down into the binary. It all comes back to the ones and zeros. So they needed a physical way to store these ones and zeros. They started doing things like holes in cards. That sounds pretty rudimentary. Here are some punch cards where you could actually store information that you can communicate to the computer of yes, no, on, off, one, zero through holes, physical items that were getting to the computer and these got more complicated. We're not gonna get in real deep um, but you could even run programs with these and different commands. Well, finally, in the 1950s, IBM came up with a new way, and it was a way that other people had been looking at, and that was magnetic um, systems, where there was some kind of a magnetic surface. They had a canister, and around the outside, there was a magnetic film with tiny little magnetic grains broken into different groups. And each group, you could take the special head and put it over it, and it would point the magnetic grains in that one group one direction. It would either go this way or that way, signifying on and off. So they started s storing the ones and zeros in magnetic um, setups and systems. And eventually they made them disks, kind of like records, where you had the, a spinning thing and a head that would go over these disks. And so in the 1950s, this was the first hard drive. Here's a picture of it. That is the first hard drive from IBM. It's, it's not exactly pocket size, <laughs> uh, but it could hold a whopping five megabytes, okay? <laughs> That's like maybe two, two pictures on that, okay? Um, those better be important selfies. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> wow, and, but that was groundbreaking. And it had 50 of these platters of magnetic storage systems with those tiny little groups that would go this way or that way. Well, then it became a game, not a game, a mission of getting those groups smaller and smaller and smaller because the more we could shrink them, the more we could fit on the disks. Well, eventually they would get them much, much, much smaller into something even as small as this. And again, we have the head that comes out, the discs are spinning, the head can go back and forth like this, and it finds the ones and zeros. It either writes them, okay, if you're storing the data, or if you're going to retrieve it, it reads the ones and zeros. And they get it smaller and smaller and smaller. Here's, here's a picture of the inside of a hard drive. You can see the multiple platters or discs and one of the heads that arm can go extremely fast. If they can, the arm can go back and forth like 40 times a second, and even faster in some cases, and the disc usually spins about 7,200 times per minute. And here's a picture of looking down, um, the head going over these magnetic groups. So you can see some of the arrows are that way, some of them are this way, that's a one or a zero. And they tried to get it smaller and smaller, and finally they ran into something. The head, they were so small that the head was too far away. They couldn't see it well enough. So they needed to get that head closer, but if that head touches that disc, it's bad news for your information. They have been able to using a special heat technology and then the air, the wind from the spinning disc to now get that head with a distance between it and the disc of just two strands of hair? No, two strands of DNA <laughs> between. Um, so they are extremely close, and then they ran into another problem, and that was they made the little groups of magnetic grains so small that when they would set the magnetic direction, it, if it got slightly warm, it would lose it, so you'd lose your data. And so they looked at this, and let's look at this picture again, and they had a breakthrough of let's turn the magnetic directions vertical, and all of a sudden they could go even tighter. So they're getting more and more tight, and eventually, and I mean now, there's, there's even more things, obviously, um, that people are doing. Incredible stuff. And we've taken the, squ the square inch space of how much we can store in this square inch on these disks, about over, well, I think they say over 300 million past what that IBM hard drive originally did, which is pretty amazing. And it's only going up. It's incredible. So they do amazing things, but remember, it all goes back down to the bit and the bite. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
And now, introducing Roger Billings. People are doing very good work. That's a pretty good drone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, what'd you think about it? I'd like to try it. <laughs> yeah, drones are fun, aren't they? They are. They're very fun. Yeah, I've been working on a new drone. Did you know that when you make a drone with four little motors and four little propellers and they all spin and lift it up, that it takes more power than if you make a wing that flies through the air? I didn't know that. Yeah. And so, we're experimenting with a design for a drone that takes off like that and then it flies to keep it up so it can stay up three times as long. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is. So I wasn't prepared to talk about drones tonight, but since I was going to talk about storage. <laughs> <laughs> You're prepared. Yeah, you helped to buy us out with that, didn't you? <laughs> I wonder if you could make this into a drone. You probably could. Yeah, you probably could, couldn't you? I actually uh, am pretty excited about the technologies. Uh, John's got some good stuff there. It's amazing what they're doing. And, and Tobias made it so I can understand it. <laughs> I'm now binary encoded. Oh, yeah? Do you know what binary encoding means? Yeah. It means that you have to reach an agreement. He told us what an A was. Mm -hmm. And when you type an A, you can't store it as an A because you're just going to magnetize little teeny specks of, of metal. It's actually a, an oxide that we normally use. But, well, it used to be. It's actually getting better. But you're going to magnetize it one way with north up or with north down. And so you can't put an A there, but you can put either one or zero, like he said. And that doesn't mean anything if you have... Uh, zero one one zero. What does that mean? In terms of an alphabet, we have to come up with an agreement, and that's called an encoding agreement. If we can decide four numbers, ones and zeros, and if I say every time I send you one one zero one 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 zero, that that means A, and you agree and you remember that, then we'd have a way I could set ones and zeros, and it would have a meaning, and that's the encoding. The earliest encoding that I'm aware of was one invented by IBM. Right. Uh, they called it EPSIDIC, and that's an acronym. But it was a list of numbers, all with just ones and zeros. And then it was the letters of the alphabet and all the things they stood for. And they copyrighted that. Mm -hmm. and that was a pretty neat thing. Then, in the 70s, when some of us rebels started making personal computers, etc., we copied them. <laughs> Why wouldn't we? I don't know. That's a rebel. And they became <laughs> really grumpy. They said, we can't use their encoding because it's copyrighted. So everybody but IBM got together, and we made up a new encoding. Instead of that being A, we'll make that be B, and this will be A. <laughs> and we call that ASCII. So if you've heard of ASCII characters, that's what they are. It's letters of the alphabet and punctuation things with 8-bit binary numbers. So that's the rebel language. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Which IBM also uses now. Serves <laughs> 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 them right, doesn't it? They had to change. They, I don't think they use Epsidic much for anything more. So uh, this is a hard drive. And as you saw in, in Tobias's picture, there are little flat plates in here. They're little disks like this moon mouse pad. And they're stacked up here, and they're on a spindle which spins. And as they spin around, there's a little head that moves back and forth to read the different tracks of data. And as chance would have it, I brought one of these. <laughs> what is it? It's really neat. It's really neat. Yeah, I don't know if I can get this up enough so you can see it. Can you see? The, oh, oh, we're losing our data. That's just <laughs> what they were talking about. Uh, Non-stick surface, good. Okay, so there's another, we lost another bit. See that? See, see, 
It's called Developing corruption. stuff like this is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Okay, so this heart had filled up. But imagine that this is one of those discs inside there. Okay. And so we put little chunks of magnetic material, and it's not material that's already magnetized, it's material that can be magnetized. I just happen to bring a magnet. Mm -hmm. How do you know it's a magnet? Because I can <laughs> pick up things with it, okay? Magnets, we all know about magnets. But when they make these magnets, at first they're not magnetic. And the way you make them magnetic is by magnetizing it. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> so here's a piece of metal. This is actually a little tool. And you see it's not magnetic. Of course, that's stainless. But let's see if we can turn it into a magnet. It's a piece of copper wire. And I'm going to make a coil right before your eyes. Turn, 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 turn. Oh, can you see that? Is that just amazing or what? So it's a little coil on a piece of metal. If I now hook this up to a battery, this will become an electromagnet. It'll become magnet. I can pick things up and when I disconnect the battery, it'll disconnect and it'll fall. Electromagnet. But did you know? Did you know so. that if you put a direct current on it and you leave it on and pull the metal out, it'll stay magnetized? If you put alternating current on it, it's going back and forth, back and forth, and you pull it out, it'll demagnetize it because mm. the field is changing back and forth. As you pull away, it gradually fades out. So that's how you make a magnet. You put in a coil. And there are some metals that if you put them in a coil, they get magnetized and they stay magnetized, like this happens to be a rare earth magnet, very strong. But there are other materials that they don't get magnetized. They're a magnet when there's power flowing, and they're not a magnet when they're not. And what are things like that? Well, like special types of stainless steel do that. That's kind of a neat thing. So just imagine that I have made a piece of metal with a wire around it, so I've made an electromagnet. Okay. And just imagine that these little balls on this spinning disk are made out of material that can be magnetized. So let's say that that one's magnetized and these aren't, all right? And then let's have this thing spin. I'll hold my little coil here, and as it goes by, Every time the one that's magnetized goes by, I'll get a little voltage. Bloop. And then if I magnetize others as it goes by, bloop, 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 bloop. And so I can say every time it makes a bleep, that's a one. Every time it doesn't, it's a zero. So really, your picture, your selfie, is just a little teeny, giantly small <laughs> magnet <laughs> that is storing how beautiful you are. Yeah. by being a one or not, being a zero. So just think you've got a whole track of these. Now, I've got to put my picture on there. I know what my picture is, so as this is spinning, I put this magnet down here close, and then I push a big voltage into it every time it's over one of these balls I want to magnetize. So as they're going around, I'll magnetize that one. That's part of my nose. That's part of my eye. And as it goes around, <laughs> magnetize Seems kind of crazy. That's neat. To make a good a photograph takes a lot of, of binary ones or zeros. But the good news is this little drive has one terabyte, which means it has one trillion bytes. And those are not bits. <laughs> That means that it has 8 trillion bits, little specs that can store data. This happens to be made by a company called Western Digital, and they have another drive out, which we pulled this one out to replace. It has 16 terabytes, which is pretty amazing. And remember, if you get to bits, it would be eight times that. So there's a lot of data on here, which is it's pretty shocking and amazing, isn't it? So if you have a magnetic personality, then it changes how it works? I don't know. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'd like to try this out on the power teachers. I would, I would love to Did you know to we have power teachers here tonight? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's why those I didn't were... even know. I didn't realize that's what they were. I didn't either. Until tonight. <laughs> but uh, we have something really exciting happening here for all of the, we figure about 10,000 Cella students with us tonight. And more we'll see it later on. But uh, we have some of our all-time favorite teachers here making some more courses for us. Sure do. And I'm really excited about it. And, and they don't get all summer off. They're going to be here, and then they're going <laughs> to go home and study. Uh -huh. Then they're going to come <laughs> back and do some more filming because wow. these uh, amazing teachers are very effective at helping students master the material they need. And I have begged them to please <laughs> teach more classes because the kids really are counting on them. And so... I think it'd be kind of fun tonight if we maybe recognize them and give them just a small award. Wouldn't that be good? I think so. Who should we start with? Should we start by one of the members of the power teacher couple? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, I think so. Would, would any of you recognize, any of you that have taken science, would you recognize Emily Rogers? Let's see. Today is so exciting because we're outside. I love exploring the outside environments around me. Now, today, I want to find out what environment am I in? So I need evidence. What kind of plants and what kind of animals are around me? Let's look around and explore. I see bugs of all kinds. There's ladybugs, I see ants, and dragonflies too. These are really cool small insects and animals that live in this environment. Oh, there's mammals as well. There's birds tweeting in the trees. I can hear them, and they're flying through the sky. Now, I haven't seen any large animals, but I've seen evidence of large animals. Look at these footprints. I think this is a deer. Oh, and look at this large paw. That's a fox. Oh my goodness, there are so many animals in this environment. What about the plants? Let's look at the trees. There are so many trees in this environment. Many of the leaves are large on this tree. And with the seasons, they change colors. Hmm. I think I'm getting a really good idea of what kind of environment this is. If the leaves are changing with the seasons, so they fall off on the in the winter and they grow back in the spring, they're green during the summer. I know, I'm in a temperate deciduous forest. That's the environment that I'm in. Friends, remember to look around you. What plants and animals do you see in your environments? Think about and analyze the different parts of the environment to decide what environment you live in. Go explore these things the next time you get to go on an adventure. Okay. So in just a minute, I'm gonna have her come up here. But before we do, since we have a power <laughs> I would like to introduce you, I think, to the person that she inspired to get into teaching, if I have my information right, none other than Mark Rogers. Let's see you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to view this next house. Now, the last house we saw was fine, but this one is the real diamond because it has two bedrooms and two bathrooms. It's a two-two. And me, Mark Rogers, real estate broker, I really need to sell this house to you because I'm paid on commission. So if you don't buy this house, I'm not gonna make any money because I don't make an annual salary. So what I really need you to do is slap down the checkbook and write a check for this house because it's the best house you're ever gonna sell. No, 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 don't walk away. Don't walk away, I'm paid on commission. 
I buy the house. It's beautiful. You're gonna love it. Please. Please. <laughs> Let's hear it for these guys, huh? Emily, thank you. All right, I want you guys to turn around here so everybody can see you. We're going to get them their hydrogen water bottles so that, you know, they can stay charged up all the time. You guys want to say hi to your kids tonight live? Come on over here. Sure. <laughs> Emily, go first. Right, right in here. Right here. Okay, yeah. I'm really excited to be here and filming a couple of new courses that I'm very excited about. They're going to be really exciting, and I think you're going to love them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You should see her filming studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, you shouldn't. There, there's, there's science experiments everywhere. She's the mad scientist of the family, so anybody taking fourth and fifth grade science is really going to enjoy her course. I, um, doing a counting one, and, but no, no, stay with me, stay with me. <laughs> counting one. I believe that all education, the best education comes with a story that you can connect to. And I've been really excited to film the first 65 lessons of this new accounting course, because in every lesson, we're telling a story. And that story connects you with a business that you care about, and then you're invested in learning about how to make that business even better. And just a quick shout out to the, um, the green screen team, the editing team, <laughs> Tobias back there. Thank you so much, because uh, before almost every single lesson, we're going someplace wild. So, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much for this gift. We thank appreciate you. all of you. Wow. <clears throat> Sometime we'll have to do a tour of the studios, won't we? That'd be fun. Yeah, it'd be really fun. Okay, now we have another great teacher, but he does not teach science and he doesn't teach math. Let's see what he does teach. Here he is, Todd Edmund. So we're here in Boston, and we're actually following the Freedom Trail today, which is right in front of me. The famous story that goes with this building actually involves the Boston Tea Party. In this room, legend has it, George Washington interrogated two British soldiers. Really, we're standing in the room where it all began. The one if by land, two if by sea part actually refers to Old North Church here in Boston. Now that's pretty amazing. They come onto these ships, three ships total, Robert Newman and John Pulling, basically held lanterns here, signaling to the men that they had to get ready. Both sides knew the importance of this property. This is the high ground. This is a musket that was found at Bunker Hill at the site. There are places where you can kind of feel things, and this is one of those places. You're going to have 5,000 people meet for a meeting. We're standing in front of John Adams' birthplace. Over 90,000 pounds of tea are dumped in the harbor. He then reads the Declaration of Independence to the crowd below. And so the guys that were working here, I wondered to myself, did they know that? Did they ever realize how big this was actually going to become? So here we are on the deck of the Eleanor, and we're ready to destroy some tea. Some people have called Boston the birthplace of the American Revolution. From Bunker Hill, to Dorchester Heights, to Paul Revere's home, and to the Old North Church. Boston is full of American history adventure. So join me as we go through Boston to these American historical sites and really start capturing the emotion behind the American Revolution. Let's go. Welcome back. And for you too. Thank you. Come say hello. Here he is. Over the mic. <laughs> I never shy away from a microphone. Um, the, the amazing thing is, is when I look at, at what we did in Boston, um, it, it's still, I still shake my head uh, at where I've been. Um, and since doing that, when I teach those lessons, 
I have a completely different perspective. So not only am I teaching through a cellist and and through the camera and at these wonderful sites and all the lessons that we were doing in the studio as well, but I find that I'm I'm learning too. So uh, right now I'm doing AP US History. Uh, we're we're revamping it because uh, there are a lot of changes to AP in the last few years. So um, my voice is about shot, but I, that that's because of the quarantine that that I couldn't teach for two months live. Um, but when I come back, I'm venturing into a completely new realm, and it will be third and fourth grade social studies. So, uh, so that's something that's a little scary, um, but, uh, but I've promised that, that I won't make anybody cry, and, and I'll, I'll do the best I can with, with third and fourth grade. So, uh, so this is 10 years, which is, is kind of crazy. Um, that I've now been a part of the Acellus family and, and, and what we're doing here for, for 10 years and hopefully a whole lot more. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, those are some of the most amazing teachers that have ever walked the halls of education. We're so grateful to have them. And Mark Rogers has also agreed to reach down into our elementary students with math. You know, uh, math is one of the most wonderful, powerful tools to be able to do things in your lives. And yet somewhere about third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, a lot of students get lost in math. In second grade, first grade, it's still kind of their friend. They get into the third grade and it starts getting crazy and then they lose track of it somewhere. And a lot of career opportunities go, to w go away with that. So I've talked to both these guys, and um, with Joanne as well, and <laughs> we are developing some elementary courses that I think are gonna change not only education, but they're gonna change the attitude of some of our nation. And I, I think that's just wonderful. Uh, I would like Acellus to be the most effective learning tool on the planet. But if it were only that, I would feel like perhaps we failed. Because even more important is the mission that Acellus has to inspire people, to be happy, to believe in themselves, to have good lives. And you know, we should be able to do both at the same time. And that's what these great teachers do. Emily, Mark, and Todd, thank you so much. And thank you for being here. Come back for 10 more years. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it from them one more time. <laughs> now, since we have just a couple more minutes, there are some juicy stories that I really want to tell. Of uh, this Winchester hard drive. Hmm. Some of you know that back in the day, <clears throat> this little computer, which is kind of heavy to lift, was designed, built, and manufactured by me and my co-workers at Billings Computer Corporation. Now, this was back when Apple was still building a little video game for a TV. And many people say this is the first serious computer out of the personal computers. And in fact, this is the one that Bill Gates himself used for about the first seven years of Microsoft. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. There's a lot of technology went in here. And I can tell you a lot of stories about this. But right here, we have two disk drives. And these two disk drives were floppy disk drives. That means you took a thin round. Some of you don't know what floppies are. <laughs> but man, back then, they were brand new. You'd take a flexible little disk and stick it in there, close the lid, and this thing would run. These disk drives were something that were very hard to get when I started building these. Now, you got to remember, I ran my first advertisement where I put these in a magazine. And I was this little company, we could build 10 a month if we can just sell them. And we got 900 orders. And we got checks in the mail. That would be 90 months to make all of those. So real quick, we got a great big building. We started building a factory that could build 1,000 a month. And things were charging along. We, we got a whole bunch of them built. But we could only get a couple of these disk drives. These were made down in California by a company called Century Data or Calcom, and I called up the general manager and I said, I've got a lot of customers waiting for these computers. 
the computers are all built. I just need the disks. Send them to me. And he wouldn't. He says, everybody wants them. Send them to me. Well, he still wouldn't. And this was going to kill my little company. And my customers were really unhappy with me. What do you do? What do you do? Well, I read in the news that the company that made these disk drives, Calcom, was being sold to Xerox. It's read in the paper. Xerox, you know, the copier company? They were buying the company that makes these disk drives. And I got a real interesting idea because I'd read in the paper about a year before that Xerox had bought another drive company called Shugart. Shugart was the biggest maker of floppy drives in the world. CalDisk was the second biggest. And so if you own the biggest and then you're getting the, little, the second biggest, they might say that's unfair trade. It's too big. And so I called the president of Calcom. I needed drives really bad. And I said, hey, it's too bad that your cell didn't go through. I didn't know him. <laughs> what? what cell didn't go through? Oh, you know, one with Xerox. It's going through. And I said, well, probably not when they find out that you're the second largest maker of floppy drives and they're the largest maker. He says, well, they don't even want the floppies. They just want the hard drives, the big ones. So, well, why don't you sell me the small drive division? And he did. And he did. But he says, it's not a division. Um, but if you want to have the design and the parts, you can. And so I did. I bought them, and I opened a little factory right by Disneyland in California, in Anaheim, California. And I started building floppy disk drives. And the first thing I did when I got there is I thanked the general manager of the floppy division told him we would not need his help anymore. <laughs> Did it feel good? No, I felt sorry for him. Oh. It felt a little bit good, didn't it? <laughs> but, you know, the interesting thing about mm -hmm. these that I, I really wanted to talk about is, is the drives. I've got a photograph showing my Billings computer before this. It's actually my second model. My first model didn't sell very good. 10 a month would have been nice. Can we show you a picture of this? And can you see that big thing on the right side of the screen? It's white in front and blue on the sides. That is a disk drive. It's called a hard drive. And sitting on top is one of the disks. So you pick up that big thing, pull up the lid, stick it down inside, and you had 10 megabytes. Wow. Which was shocking. I mean, back in the day, it was shocking. And you notice my computer had a terminal, it had a disk drive unit, a floppy drive, it had the CPU, and then it had the hard drive, and uh, all of that was replaced by this little jewel. Can you see why this one sold better? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it was also a lot less expensive. But it's, it's kind of fascinating because uh, Shugart, my biggest competitor in the floppy disk business, was started by a guy named Dr. Shugart. That sounds... That makes sense? Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. <laughs> Dr. Shugart started that company. And when he sold it out to Xerox, he started another company. And his new company, called Western Digital, was going to build a rigid drive, or a hard drive, or a Winchester disk. And uh, he really pioneered... Uh, pioneered this industry. Now hard drives are, are so very, very, very important. And it's kind of neat that I, I got to know him. Uh, not very well, but in that, in that period. One of the real interesting things that I learned from my career in the computer industry so far is that all of these amazing things that are, are done are just done by normal people. Seriously, as I met them, I would always count, and I never met one with more than two legs. <laughs> They're just normal people, mm -hmm. and they had a good idea. Mm -hmm. They worked very, very hard, and they made their dreams come true, and it, that's what shapes our world, and that's what we want all of our Cellus graduates to do, to have the power to be able to do the things in their lives and in this world that they really want to do. Knowledge is power. If you know the math, 
if you know history, if you know about society, if you know about science, if you know these things, it empowers you to be able to see how to do things that you never do otherwise. And then if at the same time you get that knowledge, you also get the self-confidence, the determination, the gumption, then you can go out and make them happen. And I, I think Acellus is going to really, really change the future of our nation, especially with these new courses. I'm real excited about them because if we can help students really come out of elementary school with a much stronger foundation in both math, which you need for science, and in uh, understanding our government and our constitution and and how our society works, it's gonna make a real difference as they go forward. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. Yeah. How about you? I am, I'm very excited. You agree too. Uh, in my adventure in the computer field, um, there are so many stories, but there's one I wanna leave you with tonight. And I wanna go back over to this, uh, we call it the BC-12 FD. Yep, there it is. <laughs> When I uh, put together the design for this computer, there are a lot of things I wanted to do. First of all, everything is on one circuit board in the bottom. That had never been done before. Everything's all integrated in one cabinet. There have been terminals before. That it wasn't a terminal, it was the whole computer, and they certainly didn't have the drives. I put in as much memory as the CPU could handle. I'd never seen another computer that did that. And I did a special kind of memory because it made it more affordable. And then these floppy drives, my team and I decided they didn't have enough capacity. And so we made a second head so that when you stick it in, it can read the top of the drive and the bottom at the same time. And that's kind of an interesting thing. You say, well, that was easy. What did you do? Well, we put a head on top and there's already one on the bottom. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Well, here's what happened before us. When you stick the floppy in, and if you have a top head and a bottom head, and you turn it on, it works pretty good for a few days, and then one day, it scrapes all of the magnetic coating off the disk. And the reason it does it is because the disks are made out of a plastic material called mylar. And when there's high humidity, mylar expands. And as it would expand, it would get too tight between the heads, and it would scrape off the, the magnetic coating and all your data was gone. So we had an amazing high-tech breakthrough. When we put the top, spring on, uh, the top head on, we put a spring on it so that if the stuff got fatter, it would just push it up. Kind of dumb. That idea resulted in a patent which collected over $100 million in royalties. Just think about it, a spring on the top head. Just a dumb little idea. And yet we had the kind to know what the problem was to be able to fix it. Now, my mentor, Bill Lear, you know, the guy who made the Learjet, he was making his jet, and he wanted everything to be amazing. And back then, if you like to listen to music, you put a cassette in a player and hit play, and it'd go all the way through to the end. Then you'd have to pop it out, turn it over, and you could play the back. He says, you can't pop a cassette over while you're flying a Learjet. <laughs> so he said, why can't you have a tape that goes and goes and goes, and it just keeps pulling it out of the center of the tape so it never quits, and have the beginning and the end hooked together? And so he invented a thing called the 8-track stereo. You have these little cartridges, you just stick them in there, and it would play to the end of the Learjet. <laughs> and it was kind of, and until you got tired of that kind of music. Well, when he came out with the eight track, it caught on. And people started buying eight track players, put them in cars and trucks, in homes. They were very, very popular. And then a group of companies, uh, including mainly RCA, decided that they didn't want to pay Mr. Lair a royalty for using his invention. So they didn't. And he hired his attorneys, and he had to sue them in court to enforce his patent. And when they got in court, 
the thing about the patent that held up and collected him from that one lawsuit, $18 million, was this simple fact. When he put the cartridges in the player, they have to be perfectly lined up with the head, so does the magnetic coatings go by, it makes that little sound, which is what stores the music or creates the music. And when he put them in with the eight tracks on the tape, they had to be perfectly aligned or it wouldn't sound good. And to make it perfectly aligned, he put a post on one side, so when you stick it in, it would hit up against the post, and on the other side, he put a spring to push it against the post. And that simple idea is the patent that held up in court and made him a whole lot of money because no one could figure out another way to do it as well. So patents are kind of fun. One other fun story about these, when I started getting my drives and I started shipping a whole bunch of them, I had people that would call in and say, I got my computer today, but it was broken in shipping. And turned out that out of every four we shipped, one was arriving at the destination broken. And you know, some of those shipping people, it seems like they just kind of throw them. <laughs> We got a big thing on there, fragile, handle with care. And that means how far can you throw it? You know? <laughs> so uh, I didn't know what to do. All those were coming back. People were sad. It was costing me a lot of money. And so I went over to the factory. My guys were working there. And I got one of these computers off of the end of the assembly line. It was ready to be put in a box. It just finished testing. And I picked it up and I dropped it on the floor. And all my employees were there looking, and it just broke. Just And they looked at me in shock, and I said, this one isn't ready to ship. <laughs> and I said, when I can test one that doesn't break, then we can ship it. He says, you're kidding. I said, no. This is a little trick I learned from UPS. <laughs> so... They started over on the design. They put braces in everywhere. They made metal things, all kinds of things, and they were out dropping them. <laughs> and finally one day said, we got a bunch ready to ship. And I went over and plugged it in. It worked fine. We didn't hardly have any breakage after that. And that's kind of what you have to do with, with a company and with a technology like this. In the case of Bill Lear, when he made his Learjets, this was a jet that was way ahead of everybody else. And he was doing really well. You know, Frank Sinatra got one. All of these big people were flying Learjets. And then one day he woke up to the news that a Learjet had crashed. And he knew the pilot. He knew the pilot well. The FAA did a big study in flight safety and decided that it was pilot air. And so they said, you're okay. But a short time later, another one crashed. And it was the same conditions. And the FAA again said this was electronic system and they fixed that. But he knew that wasn't it. He knew those pilots could have flown it without electronics. And so he went to work on it and it took him uh, almost a, a year to finally find the problem. But when the Learjet takes off, it can climb up to high altitudes so fast. It's not like a normal airplane. And both of these accidents occurred when there was rainy weather. And what he found out was that rain was getting in the back of the wing, and it would climb so fast up to where it was cold, the water was freezing, and the wing was locking up, and then it couldn't be controlled anymore. All he had to do to fix the problem was go to the very back edge of the wing and drill a little hole to drain it, and one on the other wing. And they never had another crash from that. Oh. Well, it's, it's interesting that uh, that's the kind of stuff you have to do if you're going to be an entrepreneur. If these aren't arriving at the customer all in one piece, what are you going to do? I thought, well, we could fix UPS. <laughs> Now let's just make them strong, and that's how it works. Well, we're out of time tonight. I want to thank John and Tobias for their wonderful input. I want to thank Peugeot's people for sharing the drone with us. That was great. Did you have anything you'd like to add tonight? We have a lot of our... Um
students thinking, the teachers. They really makes a big difference to them. And uh, you're making an impact. I don't think you realize as much because it's, I know behind the camera, but they're, they're saying thank you. Thank you. One of the things I love about Wednesday nights is we get so much feedback. Yeah. We really, really do. And I love going through it. Some of them have helped me improve things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad they're honest and straightforward. Mm -hmm. But many have uh, told us about teachers that they really appreciate. Yeah. Please keep up the good work. And all you guys who work so hard mm -hmm. every day, tomorrow we're going to pick up the pace. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.